Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Have you ever felt like no matter what you did, there's nothing you can do to figure it out? Figure out how to solve it, how to fix it, how to bring a horrible situation to some sort of a reasonable resolution and just been like, I got nothing. Have you ever felt just, have you ever just felt like a situation is hopeless and that nothing you can do, that you do has the ability to help or been to a point of exasperated desperation and just felt like giving up? That sense of helpless desperation is real. Most people, if they've lived long enough, experience it at some point. It can be anger-inducing. It can overcome you. It can paralyze you into a state of fear, lead to hopelessness, depression, etc. And as we look at our text today, we find that it could also be the very path to life which is paradoxical, the path into the kingdom of God. Over the past few weeks, we've learned that the path to glory is paved over with humility and goes straight through a grave, is what we have seen over the last several weeks. We've seen how this affects every aspect of our lives, even our lives in our bedrooms and our marriages. Yet somehow, Jesus is not done dismantling us. (laughs) He's not done dismantling our pride. He's not done dismantling and digging deeply into the most intimate and private aspects of our lives. He takes us, as it were, this morning to that place of utter desperation. He brings us to the point where we throw up our hands and yell out, well, what hope is there for me then? What am I going to do? That is where He brings us this morning. And so Jesus' answer in all of this, on this long, dark road to glory, his answer is a soft, quiet, very simple truth. It's so simple, it's so basic, it sounds like a throwaway euphemism, the kind of thing that you see in a coffee cup or the kind of thing you see in a bookmark. It's something that someone like me, at first glance, when I see it, brush over it as a cute saying that has no real meaning, right? Yet this morning, that very simple and seemingly overused sentiment is anything but mere sentiment. It's the final and it's the full and last hope we have for sanity in this world. It's the last straw that draws us up from the pit of despair and speaks a gentle word of hope. It's the simple declaration, with God all things are possible. It is not a a pithy little vacuous sentiment. It is our full and final hope. And so this morning, I hope to show you this from this text in two different ways. Uh, We're going to see throughout this text two different things. We're going to see human desperation and that divine declaration. So human desperation and a divine declaration. And through this, I think we'll see that with Jesus, all things are indeed possible and that there is indeed hope for us despite the very dark and humble road that he calls us to walk. So first then, human desperation. In this text, 
Human desperation comes to us in two different forms. It comes in two different forms. It comes to us both in the issue of status and wealth. Social position and finances, right? Verses 13 to 16 show us the human desperation for status. And verses 17 down to 25 show us the human desperation for wealth. We're of mind, um, especially in, uh, well, really at any age, in any culture, but especially in our very American culture, that either or both status and wealth is the answer to what we need in life. It's the answer to our pain, the answer to our sorrow, the answer to the various needs we have in life. It's the answer to security. It's the answer to actually getting something done in life, status and wealth. And if we could just figure out a way to scramble and acquire some degree of either status or wealth, that would get us into a kind of glory. If we could just figure out a way to pull those things together, we could get a kind of glory out of it. And we see this in verses 13 to 16. It shows us the disciples looking to status for help. That's what they're doing here. They're desperate for status. After all, they are, at, they are tasked by Jesus with bringing in the kingdom of God. That's their job, is to bring in the kingdom of God. There's satanic resistance to their efforts. There's political resistance to their efforts. They are poor. They're hungry. They're fighting to usher in a new kingdom, a new, a new order of world peace, health, flourishing. And they need all the help they can get. Who is strong enough for that task on their own? They look up in the midst of that struggle to bring in the kingdom of God, and what do they see happening in front of them? Jesus hanging out with kids. That's what's happening. They're in the midst of a cosmic battle, and their leader is being surrounded by children. There's women in the town close by, most likely women, we assume, bringing these children out and are distracting him from the very important work that they have been called to do. The disciples see a line of people with kids in their arms. They're piling up as Jesus is taking time to pray for them and bless them. And when the disciples see this scene, they're not filled with, oh, warm fuzzies, how cute Jesus is hanging out with the kids. It's not. That's not what's happening. They see this and they're filled with an indignation at the women who are bringing these children to Jesus. They, 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 these disciples see these women and they're, they're obstructing their efforts. They're distracting from the work. These kids are distraction. These women and children don't add value to their goals. They don't add value to their agenda. They're a distraction. They're a liability. And when you're desperate, when you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, the inconveniences of a child are not exactly a welcome distraction. And we all know this. Have you ever tried to accomplish anything productive with a child around? Yeah, it's an exercise in futility, right? You can't. If you have a child helping you clean the yard, you won't only be cleaning the yard, you'll be cleaning up the new messes they create while you clean. Right? Josh, amen, yes. 
If you ask your kid to help you change the oil in your car, you'll be frozen with fear. They will do something to kill you or themselves. You won't get anything done. Children may be cute, but they're a liability when it comes to getting serious things done. That's the way of the world. That's, that's, that's how we see them. And so the disciples do what any normal person would do in this situation. They put a stop to it. And so they go out to these women, bringing these children, and they attempt to rebuke them. <clears throat> you can see that right there in verse 13. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, we're going to pause right there and keep that in our minds. The disciples are desperate to get things done. And so those of low status aren't helping. But now let's, let's see the second scene. Verse 17 and following shows us a man looking to his own status, his own wealth for help. A young man comes up to Jesus and asks, what can I do to gain eternal life, to fully enter into all the joys of the kingdom of God? Jesus reviews the law with him there in those verses. And the young man pulls out his resume after Jesus reads through these various laws. And he says, well, look, Jesus, I've kept these laws since my youth. I've done all that. That's on my resume. Now, I feel like most of my life as I've read this, I've read that as if, oh, that's a joke, that's funny, that he thinks that he kept the law. Seems like Jesus kind of takes him serious. In fact, I believe Jesus does take him serious here, and he actually is speaking honestly. This is, this is a man who has kept the law. This is a man who has followed God's rules. Jesus doesn't necessarily permit us to diminish this guy's moral record. Jesus looks at him in love, not in judgment, not in, as if he's a, he's a hypocrite here. He looks at him in love. Like Noah in Genesis 6, he was blameless. Like Paul himself said of himself, that he was blameless before the law in Philippians 3.6 and 1 Thessalonians 2.10. David in Psalm 18 claims that he kept God's law. Job was blameless before God's law. Daniel in Daniel 7 is described as one who was blameless before God's law. So it's not too weird that a man would be confident enough to say and look at Jesus and say, look, I've, I've kept that. I've, I've, been, I've been serious about God's law since my youth. And this man had the proof. He had the proof, which is odd. I mean, we don't see it because we live in a different culture. But in that culture, if you were a person of wealth, that was proof that God loved you. That was proof that God appro approved of you. They viewed financial blessing as an evidence of God's approval. In verse 22, it says he had great possessions. So this man not only comes with the confidence, he comes in his mind with the proof that he is a man of God obeying and serving the Lord. Now, if you're looking to build a new kingdom, if you're looking to build a new kingdom, if you're looking to kick Satan's butt and overrule the oppressive and corrupt powers of the day and bring a new order, 
You need good men that can be trusted, and you need good men that have power and money. That's what you need to get the job done. Not kids. You need this guy. This dude has it all. If there ever was a man best suited to take up first rank in the kingdom of God, it's him. He is the ideal recruit for the kingdom of God. Armed with these, with, with, with these human achievements, he kneels before Jesus in verse 17 saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or to ask it another way, what of my human achievements that I'm clinging to with desperate hope can I now use to prove myself a worthy candidate to get into your kingdom? Right? He's desperate to enter into the kingdom. And this is our common struggle as a people. The world around us is filled with evidence that if we work hard, if we be good, achieve some status, build some wealth, we'll be able to gather up a little bit of heaven on earth and build our own little kingdom of God right here. Right? That's, that's, that's our hope. And here's the shocking, dismantling, horrifying reality that utterly shocks and dismays the disciples. It crushes this rich young man. Jesus rejects all of it. He just re outright rejects it. All of the human achievement is nothing to him. All of the status is rubbish. All the morality, all the wealth is utterly and completely worthless to him in, the, in this text. In verse 14, when Jesus sees the disciples shooing away the women and the kids, he gets the word there is indignant. He's angry. He is indignant at them and their desperation for status. Jesus here turns the tables back on them rather than these women being rebuked. Now the disciples are being rebuked, saying that the kingdom of God is for those without status like these children. He goes even further in verse 15. He says that you cannot even gain entry into the kingdom if you are not as low, humble, and humble as a child. You see, these kids, when they come to Jesus, they just come. They enjoy Him. They receive from Him. They receive blessing from Him. They're not there to give Jesus anything as if they can contribute. They're not there to help Him. They're only there to receive from Him. They have nothing to offer Him, and they're not trying to help Him. They're just with Him to be blessed by Him. And Jesus says, yeah, that's how you must be if you want in my kingdom. You must be like a child in the way in which you receive the kingdom, as he says there in verse 15. You must not come as if you can achieve status and you can bless me by building my kingdom. <laughs> Instead, you must receive it. This leaves the disciples back to square one. If status is not an option for us and we cannot work for that, what will get the kingdom going and bring it into fruition? Like us, they don't know how to process a world in which status is not going to help them. As it is how things are done in the world. So what are they to do? You can, you can feel their desperation, their confusion here. Like this is the way things, this is, the, this is how we build a business in America. This is how we do things, right? Verse 21 Jesus looks at this guy's resume. He looks at the, this rich guy's resume who wants in the ideal candidate 
And he does not argue with his stellar story and responds to this young man in a very extreme way. He gives him a command. You notice here, we need to notice this. He gives him a command that far exceeds anything Moses ever commanded. Nowhere in the Old Testament is anyone called to give up everything that they own to give to the poor to receive God's blessing. And here's what's crazy. He actually gives him a command that would break the law of the land in that day. Jesus says this dude lacks one thing, which is to give away everything he has. And if you're building a kingdom, that makes zero sense. How do you build a kingdom when you have no resources to do it? Take your resources to build it and just give it away. Just give away the blessing of God. You can see the desperation of this, right? What do you do? Moses never commanded this to happen. The law of the land, as I said, in scribal law, it's illegal to give away more than one-fifth of your property or resources as they wanted to prevent people from falling into poverty or getting scammed by some, by some corrupt salesperson. Jesus demands this dude go beyond the Mosaic law, violate Jewish scribal law, and that's going to get him entry into the kingdom of heaven. Like Paul in Galatians 5. Galatians, the, the church there was thinking, if, if, uh, was being influenced by people who are saying that if you really want God's blessing in life, you need to get circumcised. You, need, you, you, you Gentile folks need to get circumcised. And Paul's argument in Galatians 5 is this. If circumcision is really the hope, then why, not, why just take off a little skin? Let's just cut the whole thing off. That's, that's Jesus' logic here. If you think status, if you think wealth is what's going to get it for you, well, then let's talk money. Let's talk about it. And what happens is this guy walks away sorrowful. In verse 22, he walks away sorrowful. He's confused. He's shocked. His resume is impeccable. And he walks away defeated, much like the disciples did. And yet, what's even more weird, that's most confusing, is that in verse 21, Jesus looks at him with love. Right? Wow, what, what is that about? It doesn't feel like love. The disciples agree. The disciples agree with us that this doesn't make sense. They're utterly shocked. This guy was an encouragement to them. You can imagine a guy like that walks into your group. They're like, oh my gosh. This is, our, this is, what we, this is the person we've been looking for. This is, the need, this is what we've needed. They found the man with status, money, and morality all rolled up into one, and Jesus sends him packing. What is going on? And we find Jesus' response to all this in verse 23. Verse 23, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. And then he re-emphasizes that point. <laughs> and he, before he does it, notice there, he says there in verse 24, children. Jesus is talking, you should see the connection here between these two passages. He's talking to them as children, repeating his statement, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And then after that comes the famous line most of us have heard, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now Jesus here is speaking literally, not figuratively. Um, if you, um, Some people have heard preachers say that there's some gate in Jerusalem that... Uh, that this was referring to that a camel could like stoop down and go through. doesn't exist. It's not historical. It's a bit of fake history. Um, I'm not trying to slander anybody, but it's fake. You've heard that. It's not true. Jesus is being literal here. Jesus is being literal. He's not being figurative. He's not drawing an analogy to a gate or anything like that. He is not just saying it's hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom. He's saying that it's easier to kill, dismember, turn a camel into string, pull it through the eye of a needle entirely, than reconstruct it and bring the camel back to life than it is to get a rich man into the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. That's what, that's what he means. And there's, there's a reason why. There's a reason why he says this. Because if you gain wealth, if you gain morality, that's hard work. That's hard work. It takes extraordinary levels of intelligence, effort, self-control, and wisdom to gain wealth. Most rich people are rich because they have slaved for it. And when you slave for it, you grasp it tightly. You trust it to get you what you need in life. You lean upon it. Gaining wealth trains a person to be independent. It trains us to be self-sufficient. It tells us we have things that we can accomplish and that we have things under control. When you can push a button and set the controlled temperature of a room, despite the fact that it's going to be 97 degrees outside, that shapes you into a different kind of person than if you have no resources and no money and cannot control the weather. That shapes you into a certain kind of person. It shapes you into a very self-sufficient person. We live in Ankeny with an average household income of $92,000 a year. That's the average household income in Ankeny. A household income of $90,000 a year puts you in the top 10% of the richest people on earth. Which means that in our little city here, we're one of the richest cities on the planet. How do you meet the needs of people who have none? We're the camel here, all of us. If you have $4,000 in the bank or $4,000 in any kind of assets at any point, you're richer than more than 60% of the earth. We have no needs. We're a city of rich young rulers looking for what we can do with our abundance. And while our impetus to serve and do for the kingdom looks religious and pious on the surface, it can emerge from a fountain of pride, assuming, like the rich young man, like the disciples here, that we can do anything other than just receive the kingdom. We build the kingdom the same way we experience conversion, though. It's an act of receiving, not a doing. The disciples were not to build the kingdom, they were to receive it. Rather than this rich young ruler asking, what can I do to inherit eternal life or come into the kingdom? He, should, he, he needs to say, I need to receive eternal life rather than do. We bring nothing to God for our salvation and we bring nothing to the table but a desperation 
in great need for the power of the blood of Christ to make strong our weakness and to make fruitful our foolish, and our foolish efforts. And as we think about planting Emmaus, Jesus calls us, even as we think about planting this church, to receive the kingdom. This is obviously said to men as the disciples that are out doing work, so it doesn't mean they're not doing anything. But what it does mean is that our efforts are not the answer. Our status is not the answer. Our money isn't the answer. Abilities and skills and work are of actually no value. The kingdom is one that is only and always one of receiving, not our doing. It is, simply put, the doing of Jesus. And this, this is unnerving. It's unnerving. I want to be able to look at my effort and be able to logically follow then my results. And Jesus here is indignant at that impetus. So then the second thing, then we need to see his divine declaration. So we're going to look at the divine declaration. So we've seen their desperation, now God's declaration. The disciples in verse 26, having witnessed all of this, they fall apart. They fall apart in this moment. It says in verse 26 they're exceedingly astonished. Exceedingly astonished. They're overflowing with confusion, disappointment. They have no clue why Jesus is acting this way. This is nuts to them. This is just nuts to them. And Jesus simply, in verse 27, responds to that desperate astonishment. And he says, when they ask, how is anyone going to get saved? How is the kingdom going to get saved? What are we we going to do? What are we going to do, Jesus? If none of that works, what are we going to do? With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. God is unbounded. He is infinite. He's self-sufficient. He's not reliant upon anything for His power outside of Himself. All of of God's resources to do anything and everything comes from within Himself. I need oxygen to breathe, calories to sustain me and energize me, God has no needs for anything outside of Himself for His own existence or to accomplish anything for any purpose to any degree. He is fully, entirely, completely self-sufficient. God no more needs status to establish His kingdom than a fat man does calories to survive a day. He no more needs money to establish his kingdom than a rock does to sit in the sun. Right? He no more needs moral, the moral exploits of a well-disciplined man or woman to establish his kingdom than he does ice, an ice cube in an ice storm. You see, the disciples and this rich young man saw God's kingdom primarily as a human endeavor, as a human project built by human ingenuity, strength, wealth, and status. And Jesus says, you just don't get it. 
you don't you don't know you don't know what you're stepping into here. You don't know what you're stepping into. The whole kingdom project is done from start to finish by the power and by the strength and the wisdom of God. And nothing, absolutely nothing, you can do will even begin to be of service to God. He does not need us, period. Like a child with their plastic mower walking behind his dad. His dad is doing the mowing, but the kid thinks he's helping, right? Right? The kid really thinks, oh, I'm, I'm cutting the grass with my dad. It's cute. It's cute. It's funny. It's the kind of thing you take a picture of, put on Facebook. Oh, look at him. He's out there following his dad with his Fisher Price. Right? No one takes a picture of their 22-year-old normally developed son walking behind their dad with a Fisher Price lawnmower. No one does that. Deluded by the impression that he's doing anything other than embarrassing himself, right? We might be tempted to discouragement seeing Ankeny as a bunch of camels, as it were, until we realize we're one of them and God saved us. Our desperation, our struggle for success and accomplishment is vain, but when we stop and receive from God, resting in Jesus and His power, there's sufficient hope and unbounded power to accomplish everything. Right? Rather than running around like frantic, anxious people looking to do what only God can, we can play behind God and enjoy Him receiving the kingdom. That is the call that Jesus has for His disciples. And that's what He was calling this rich young man to in His demands. When Jesus looks at that rich young ruler with love, He is loving him. He is asking him on purpose to do things he cannot do to help him see the limits of his financial strength, to help him see the limits of his moral strength, and to realize how silly it is to wave that stuff in the face of God, of the God of the universe, as if God would need it or be impressed by it. Right? And as he loves him, he's inviting him to instead play with God. To play with him. To receive from him, rather than engage Jesus like he's on a job interview. Right? He looks at you and me this morning with our moral resume and says, I'm here when you're ready to set all that down and will come play with me and enjoy me and delight in in me when you're ready to humble yourself and set that stuff aside. And, you know, that, that sounds great. But does it not leave us hanging out there without any tangible rope to grab on if things go sideways? Right? If we had some wealth, some status, we'd at least have a backup plan. Having no backup plan uh, seems a little crazy, Jesus. What are we going to do in light of that? And Peter speaks for us in this. He speaks for us in verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus, he says, um, see, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. We're vulnerable. We've left everything and we have followed you. Bro, we, we left, and we're out here scared. You're playing with kids. You're turning away people who could help us. We're freaking out. And Jesus, in his tender care, he looks at them and gives them hope in verses 29 to 31. He says not only that they'll receive 100-fold in the life to come, but look what he says in verse 29. When he, when he goes through the things that they might give up, there's no one who's left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. And when he says there, it's very easy to read over it and miss it. He says there in verse 29, that little phrase, for my sake. Right? Left all this for my sake. He is saying here, you need to catch this. He's saying, I'm better. I'm superior than all these things that you've left. And you have me here with you right now. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, I'm better than your homes. I'm better than your family, than your kids, than your land. I'm better than being accepted by society and avoiding persecution. Jesus is saying he's better. Not just better, he's infinitely better. And through his shed blood for you on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is with you even now to know and to commune with him and know him as better. He comes with blessings, no doubt. Those blessings that we will get in the life to come, as he says. But today, right now, we get him. And he is more than sufficient. Your reward is not all in the future, though it is in the future. It's also today. You have the one with you who is superior to all of it, making whatever vulnerabilities come by receiving rather than doing and building worth enduring. The rich young man, the disciples too, thought the kingdom was about them building a future. When Jesus looks at them and says, whatever you think future you think you can build, will cost you a lot, but I'm right here with you and I'm the whole of your joy. And sure, you'll get reward in heaven, but today you have me. For my sake, you've left these things. So receive, he's saying to them, receive me. Receive my kingdom as a gift and stop building your own thing and rest in the power of God. Enjoy the greatest gift there is, myself. Jesus suffered the loss he suffered the loss of all things, even his own life. And he rose from the dead in victory over death and Satan. And here he offers the real and steady hope that as we set aside our desperate efforts to secure success in life and entrust it all to God, to give up everything, trying to, <laughs> trying to help God instead of being helped by God, uh, there's hope that whatever losses come are secured uh, are secured more than are, are they're secured and they will for sure be repaid in the life to come. That path to glory requires humility. That requires deep humility. It requires humility to acknowledge that we have nothing to offer God in the building of his kingdom. Humility to accept that our best offerings are no more effective than Fisher Price toys in a world that needs cut grass. Humility that sees Jesus and his power as the full and final answer to all of our desperations in life. Humility to endure whatever difficulties come as we trust him in faith that he will indeed restore whatever is lost. Humility to hang up our work boots and receive from him, enjoying him and the blessings that flow from his labor as opposed to our own. And so the question this morning for us all is this, are you desperately working to build your own kingdom. Jesus calls you to rest, to receive, to play with him as a child and enjoy him as a child would. The path to glory 
is paved with humility, knowing that we have not the resources to get through the grave except by the power of the blood of Jesus. And only in His power, in His status, in His riches, in His resume, to get us to glory and all the things that He calls us to do and be. So Emmaus Church, know this, the blood of Jesus poured out for your salvation is proof that you are free, you're free and safe to lay aside your resume and your desperate efforts and to simply delight in Jesus. That's His hope for you today. So might you receive Him and know His power among you today. Let's pray and ask Him for help to do that. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the fact that uh, our weak, anxious efforts are not our hope. And um, I pray that You would humble and soften our hearts to see Jesus for all He is for us and all of His glory that we would humbly not ask what we can do, but just delight in Him as a child. And I pray that You would help us to do that so that uh, we would rest, that we would stop fighting and delight instead in your power over our own human strength. We ask for your help in this. We are too easily trained to do otherwise. So break that in us and by your Spirit, help us to live in this manner. In Jesus' name, amen.